Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today's episode 209 and we're going to be interviewing Dave. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to do this. So let's uh, let's rock and roll here. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Okay, I grew up um, in Irvington, New Jersey. It was more or less a ghetto. Not really a ghetto, but it was mixed. It was like oh, I'm in Jersey. Of... Yeah. I'm in, I'm in Jersey. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I know Irvington. Yeah, so I grew up in Irvington, a pretty much a broken household. Um, you know, my father was in and out of prison. My mom was in and out of mental institution. So my mom and dad split up, and we moved to Irvington, my mom and me, to stay with my grandparents. How old were you when they split up? three years old oh so you're still really really tiny i was young yeah do you have any memories from that time yeah i remember a lot of like when my parents were together before they split there was a lot of abuse you know a lot of like verbal abuse physical abuse a lot of you know pictures flying and my dad throwing my mom up and down flights of stairs and it was just it was rough. It was really rough. And my dad was, like I said, in and out of jail. He'd come home, you know, promise he would stop drinking or whatever. And the same thing happened until one night. It was like three in the morning. My mom woke me up and said, your bags are packed. Let's go. And we snuck away, went to my grandparents, you know, apartment in Irvington. And, you know, my dad like four years later, I was like seven or eight. He tried, I was outside playing and my dad came and he tried kidnapping me. So I ran home and my mom's holding one arm and my dad's holding another and I'm going to get him away from you. And I'm just like, you know, so growing up wasn't, wasn't easy. Like I was filled with fear as a kid. I was just scared. Cause I didn't, you know, I blame myself for all, like my parents not getting along and my dad drinking so much and my mom crying and in and out of mental institutions. And it, it was just like, it was rough. It was really rough growing up. Yeah. As a kid, we kind of think everything's our fault. Yep. So, so I was, you- I was just a scared kid. Like my, even in kindergarten, I was just like, I remember the first day of kindergarten, my mom's taking me to school and I wanted no part of it. I didn't want to get out the car. I saw all the kids playing and I just didn't, I just didn't fit in. You know, I just, I felt like I was never good enough. Like, you know, my, I didn't have a nice enough house or my mom didn't have a nice enough car or I didn't have nice enough clothes. So I always felt less than all my other, all my other, you know, kids in class and stuff, you know, so it wasn't always easy, you know. No, I, I was, I feel you on that. I grew up in a wealthy town, so I was not one of the people that had a lot of stuff. But looking back, I never really wanted for anything. I always had food on the table and a roof over my head and clothes on my back. So I can't complain too much. No. So did you have a lot of friends? 
I mean, I wouldn't say a lot. A decent amount, though, yeah. A decent amount. Did your childhood, anything, did anything going on at home affect, like, your relationships with people outside of the home? Well, I did, um, I did have a bowling coach, like, uh, how do I put it? He kind of, like, sexually assaulted me, like, he touched me, and I was just, like, I was young. Like, I was young, so I didn't really know how to react to the situation. And I, like, I hid it from everyone, and I held it in. And, you know, it happened one time, and then, you know, I told the dude, I'm, I, I'm, I like, hit him or whatever, and I was just, like, it kind of, like, traumatized me in a way, you know, plus all – all my whole circumstances, you know, this all happened before I picked up a drink or a drug. You know what I mean? So yeah. How old were you when that happened? I was probably like seven. Yeah, seven years old, right before like little league. And it like it, it screwed me up because I was supposed to join Little League and, you know, my uncle's like, join Little League. And I was just filled with fear, you know? And he pushed me and pushed me and I'm like, I'll never make it. And then I finally tried out and I made it. And, you know, but, you know, it was just, it was just hard growing up. I just never, never really thought I was good enough. And, you know, it was just hard because my dad, you never knew who was coming home. It was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was like, it was a scary situation as a, a kid, you know, because I didn't know if my dad would give me a hug or he never hit me, but he would take everything out of my mom, you know, until she, until she left, you know. Physically also? Yeah. And verbally? Yeah. You know, like I said, he would drink and he would either be the nicest guy in the world or turn out to be a monster. And like half the times I wanted no part of either one of them. You know what I mean? So I held a lot of. No, you go first. I held a lot of resentment for a lot of years against my father. You know what I mean? I, I blamed him for a lot of my problems, but now I look back on it, you know, I would have had them problems if I had a perfect dad or a perfect mom or a perfect household. Cause I feel my problems started inside, like as a kid, like not feeling good enough, not measuring up, feeling less than. So I feel like I had a soul sickness my whole life, you know, until, until I figured, you know, got introduced to alcohol and got introduced to drugs and then all that fear and disease and discomfort went away. I was able to feel okay in my own skin, you know? So I think alcohol and drugs in the beginning was like a spiritual awakening. I felt like I belonged. I didn't feel, I loved it. Like I wanted to do it. Like I remember the first time kids, I got drunk with the kids on the railroad tracks and I had beer and they were able to stop. They were able to have like a six pack, have a beer or two and stop. But with me, I wasn't able to stop. 
I would the one beer would turn to two beers, and the second would want a third, and the third would want a fourth, and I would end up going home with vomit all over me because I couldn't I couldn't stop. I didn't I just I'm allergic to alcohol, you know, and drugs. So once I put that in my system, I don't have an off switch. Yeah, I know the feeling. I've been, I, uh, I'm an alcoholic also. Yeah, I remember, I mean, I always made sure that I had some at home. I remember that because he never wanted to stop drinking. Like you said, you just couldn't stop like other people. And I was always, I was always afraid of running out. Mm -hmm. I felt more I always wondered how some people could have a glass of wine or have a drink and then say, I feel a little something, I'm going to stop. You know, I was never that person. Even from the first time I drank, I was never that person. I drank for one reason and wrote one reason only because I love the effect produced by alcohol and obviously other things, you know? Yep. So um, what were you like in school? How'd you do in school? I average. I would say average. Not awful, but not good. You know, I kind of just got by. Just got by. A perfect C student. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I would go to school. I would do what I had to do. At a very young age, I loved baseball. Baseball, I loved it. That was my outlet. Every day I would go play baseball with the kids around the neighborhood. And I was, I excelled in baseball. Baseball and bowling, I really enjoyed. <clears throat> Until, you know, I played junior high ball. I played high school ball for a couple of years. But once I really got involved with hanging out and like smoking weed and, you know, drinking and all that, all that sports stuff was like, it took a back seat, you know? So I got thrown off the baseball team because I thought that partying was more important, you know? And I probably could have went further in my sports, but I discovered alcohol. I discovered drugs and, you know, you kind of give up on all the good, all the good in your life. You kind of push to the side to keep getting, you know, loaded, you know? Yeah. When did you first use? I probably, I had my first drink probably like six years old. I probably smoked my first joint maybe 11. So six 11. years old. Six, were you consciously drinking to get drunk at six years old? No, no. But my dad would give me alcohol. The first time I really drank, drank, I think I was like 12, 13. My friends would... You know, we'd go to railroad tracks to get loaded. And once I got loaded, I the first time I had a drink, my dad gave me a shot of JD. I was like six, seven years old, something like that. I took it and I was like, oh, I'll never do that again until, you know, like 12, 13. My friends, oh, we're going to go get some beer from my dad or whatever. And we would drink. And that's when I like realized how much I loved the way it made me feel like the effect. I love the effect. I'm like, this is great. Like I felt like, you know, 
Elvis Presley. I felt like freaking I was beautiful. I was handsome. I was able to talk to people. I was a different person. It really, it was great. I loved it. And yeah. and when I did drink, I couldn't wait to do it again. You know, I don't think I was. I don't know if I was born an alcoholic because a lot of say, you know, I have family members, but I, I just know for a fact the way it made me feel, I was just like, wow, this is something I want to do. This is something I want to ride into the sunset with. You know, this is great. Who introduced you to it? Uh, actually, no, I know the, uh, who introduced you to the, who'd you smoke the joint with? My friend, oh, I would hang out with older kids and they, you know, they would smoke and, you know. And when I like remember the first time you tried it, what was that? Did you like it the first time you tried it? Yeah. Yeah. It just calmed me down. So like, you know, for most people, they start with alcohol and then they go to weed and then, you know, it just goes down and down. We'll get into that later, I'm sure, but. It's just the progression. It was just progression, you know? So I had my stages, like, you know, alcohol, you know, weed. Then as I got older, I would do the acid trips. And then I got into smoking angel dust. Ooh. And then it just... What does angel I'll, dust feel like? You feel like Gumby? You're just <laughs> like, like Gumby. Yeah, you just feel like you have no legs and you're just like out of it. But, you know, it was a good feeling. Hers is Angel Dust PCP. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we would go get PCP. I don't want to get too far into the story because you're gonna probably ask me questions. But I remember when I was 16 years old, all my friends were going to the city to get values. You know, value. Yeah. So we went. I remember. I remember. I didn't have money. So I sold my BMX bike to my friend's brother for a couple hundred dollars, maybe like 200. So I took that money. We went to the city and I, all my friends, you know, they were doing the values and I didn't. So I, I bought like five of them. And I remember I did five. They were blues, 10 milligrams. I remember Ooh. this. I did five of them. And I didn't feel anything. It was like an hour. I didn't feel nothing. So I bought more. I bought another five. I did them. That's 100 milligrams the first time I ever did them. Man, hit me like a ton of bricks. I ended up, my friends, we were in the city. We're going home to catch the train home. I remember my friends got on the subway. And I was the last one, of course, and the doors just shut. My friends were on. I couldn't get in into the subway car. And I ended up on a bus going back home. And I remember on the bus, I was smoking hash on the bus. I didn't know what I was doing, obviously. So the bus driver, he pulls over. And I'm like, "What? what's he stopping for? And he throws me off the bus. I just completely blacked out. That night, I ended up walking in the middle of the street on my way home. The cops picked me up. I ended up overdosing. I was in a coma for like probably three weeks to a month. 
and I'll never forget this. I'm in a coma. They read me my last rites. I was ready to die. And I woke up and my whole family was in the room crying. And I wake up and I'm like, what happened? You know what I mean? And I went to rehab. <laughs> I went to a rehab. And I got out of the rehab. You know, I did a 21, 28 day rehab. And I got out. And the first thing I did when I got out, I waited maybe 10 minutes. I went to see my friends and we started smoking again like it never happened. So the progression from me as a kid, I was an IV drug user at the age of 16, 17. It just got worse. What were and you worse. shooting up? Huh? What were you shooting up? Heroin, coke, drinking methadone. I mean, I was a I was a garbage head. Like there's nothing I really wouldn't do or try, and I just wanted to not feel what I felt. And I don't know if it had to do with the abuse as a kid, or me being sexually abused, or I can't even answer that. All I know is anything that got me out of me, I wanted more of it. You know? Yeah. So I I've been to like 16 treatment centers probably like 30 detoxes like i've been through it i've been homeless i've been i ate out of dumpsters i was homeless in patterson and you know i try i tried everything and, and like when i would go to these rehabs they would tell me all the same thing just go to meetings go to meetings raise your hand say you're a newcomer and this and that and i did that but as I got sober and I would go to these meetings, I just felt like like the hole in the soul. Like it just, it didn't work. And then one day I needed something. So I found a sponsor and I started going through the book and, you know, things changed. You know, I'm coming up on 13 years sober in June. You know, which is accomplishment, you know, so I, I've been through it all, you know, and I know what doesn't work for me and I know what works for me, you know. Let's take a step back real quick. Going back to when you were a kid and you first did it, what what did it feel like to shoot heroin? I'm curious about that. Wow. Um, I had I had a friend help me with it, my friend's brother. I didn't shoot up the first time. We snorted it for a little bit, you know, like a month or two. And then someone said, listen, you, you're doing all this. You could do half the amount. Try this. And I didn't hesitate. You know, I shot up, shot it up. My friend told, told me how to do it. And bam, that was it. All bets were off. Like, that's what I wanted. It. That's what I wanted. That's what I chased. And I was, you know, my drug of choice for like 20 some odd years. So obviously I loved it. Yeah. What did cocaine feel like when you shot it up? Oh, wow. Does it, it feel similar to snorting it? Because I've only snorted cocaine. No, it, it's a different rush. It's like your ears wiggle and you just, it, it's just like, you can't really explain it. It's like snorting it. You kind of like jones for it a lot. You want more and more and more. You shoot it. You get just get that like real crazy rush. 
and you're kind of like calm for a little bit until you got to do more. It's not like you got to keep doing lines, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a major, major rush. So what did you do once you graduated high or did you graduate high school? I no, I quit school and got my GED. Okay. And then I had like meaningless, you know, meaningless jobs, you know, construction jobs and any jobs to give me enough money so I could do what I needed to do. Then I started selling weed and, you know, so I had money because I knew I got to a point where I needed, I needed more money than I was making, you know, back then I'd make 200 bucks a week and that was gone. Like, you know, that, so I would go to New York you know, I had a friend that I would get weed from and I would, you know, get a, maybe started with a couple ounces, sold that. Then I would get more and more. And I was up to like a pound of weed selling it, you know, so I needed to support my habits. So I did that to support my habits. I wouldn't have to go like to do crime and break into cars and houses and do what other people that are under an influence do to get more, you know? Yeah. But I just got by in school. I I remember I got uh, caught I got caught with weed or something. Not selling it, just like personal. And uh, they told me go to rehab or you're kicked out of school. So I just said, you know what? I told my mom I'm done with school. I'm going to get my GED. And my mom, you know, like, she loved me, but she really had no control over me. You know what I mean? She wasn't a disciplinarian. She wasn't going to throw me out of the house because she knew, you know, my problems. And, you know, I put my mom through, I, I put my mom through hell. You know what I mean? She was the sweetest, most woman and you know I hurt her like not physically but I mentally hurt her you know and you know she passed away in like 2005 and uh she had like a heart attack well first she had like a brain aneurysm and she was in a hospital and I remember I would go visit her and it's just like she wasn't even my mom like she was like I didn't even recognize her anymore and that just like took my addiction to a whole nother level. That's when like I didn't I didn't care anything about anything or anyone and I had no quality of life whatsoever at that point. You know, I was just like just living to use, you know, that was my only purpose, you know. And then I lost her in um two thousand and eight. I was I came home you know, I would take care of the dogs for her. She was, after her surgery, the brain aneurysm, she was in a wheelchair. So she was like basically paralyzed. So I would help with the dog, feed the dog. And I remember one day she told me, you know, she's having a heartburn. Could you come after work and walk the dog and feed the dog, which I did all the time. So I walked the dog, I fed the dog. My mom's like, come here, come here. So I went to the wheelchair. She kissed me on my cheek and her head just went like that. And she had a heart attack in my arms and passed away. Wow, it must have been really difficult. Yeah. 
And for the first time in my life, when I knew she was gone, I called 911. And out of the blue, I just got on my knees. I just got on my knees and I'm like, God, I can't, I just can't do this no more. I just couldn't do this no more. And I remember the day I tried going to her funeral sober. And I think I did. I think I just got off the E. And I remember I got home from the funeral and I was just like at my wit's end. And I had a credit card with a cash advance. Like they gave you the numbers. And I'm like, I opened up the mail and I saw my name with my PIN number and I was able to access like a lot of money, like maybe 2000 out of an ATM. And I ended up that night in a hotel room with, I had a loaded pistol. I had an eight ball of Coke. I had like three bundles of dope and a bunch of Xanax sticks. And my objective was to stay in this hotel room until I died. Like that was my goal. And I remember I was there for like two, three days and I went to the bathroom and this is a true, true story. I splashed water on my face and I looked in the mirror and I saw my mom vivid and I'm not even like I seen her face and a tear was running down her face and she's like, please go get help. So I called my old counselor, Nicole from Eva's village in Patterson. I did outpatient there. And I told Nicole, I'm like, listen, I'm in bad shape. I lost my mom. I want to kill myself. I'm too scared to do that. I'm like, I want, I, I, I'm done. I, I need help. Like, please, could you help me? And I went to Eva's. She put me on a waiting list. I had to wait a month. I went to the shelter. I was living in a shelter. And I went to the program for 18 months. Eva's Village in Patterson. It's a long program, 18 months. 18 months. Yeah, no, I'm saying that's long. Yeah, and I needed every second of it. You know, um, it helped me. Like, it really, really helped me. I've been sober ever since, you know. Um, and I've learned that, like, recovery for me isn't just sitting in the rooms of AA. We're sitting in the rooms and just going to meetings because maybe some people could pull that off. But for me, it'll never work. I can't just sit in meetings and just do AA and pretend like my life is good without working step work. Like I'm that's what saved me. Like I went to all these rehabs and none of them really ever got me sober. The only thing that got me sober is someone telling me what my problem was because I really didn't know what my problem was I thought I just drank too much and that was my problem or I drugged too much and that was my problem my problem was I had a soul sickness that you know I didn't know how to enjoy life without the use of alcohol and drugs and then once that wore off and that didn't work no more I was even worse sober the way I felt about myself. So I needed to find a solution. You know, when I went to, from the rehab, I went to a halfway house. 
And I went to a halfway house and I went to some meeting in Wall Township called Design for Living. And it was, let me tell you, it was like 300 people and everyone had the big book. Now, I did AA because I consider myself an alcoholic. I tried NA. It's too much war stories. It just wasn't my cup of tea because I thought everyone I would speak at an NA meeting, they would glorify how much drugs they did and how much street they were and this and that. And I went to AA and I seen people that were happy. You know, they were all happy people. Like they all had the big book. So I met some guy, Jimmy A. And he took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, I was, I was broken and I was broken sober. You know, that's probably why I relapsed every time. Cause I didn't know how to feel sober. I didn't, know how to feel i felt worse sober than i did my worst day getting high and i'm like if this is the case i might as well end it like because this is ridiculous i shouldn't feel worse sober and i did and that scared me like that really scared me because i'm like the drugs aren't in my system anymore i should be feeling better and i met this guy and he told me He's like, listen, try to make it to 90 days. Try to make it to 90 days. And if it doesn't work, you can go back and drink. And he took me through the big book and things changed. Like things really changed. I under understood, understood what alcoholism was. You know, I understood that I'm allergic to alcohol and I can't consume any alcohol. The first drink will lead to the second and the third. So I needed to find a solution to my problem. And the solution to my problem is a higher power, you know, it's a God of my understanding, you know what I mean? And I went through the steps, you know, I remember I got my 90 day coin and, um, you know, after the rehab for 18 months, of course I met a girl I thought she would keep me sober and I used again. And I remember 18 months, I went to a rehab. I got out. I was good for a little bit. I had met a girl and, you know, I thought she would be able to keep me sober. And she started drinking. I would get her alcohol. And I remember one day we were at a Christmas party and I had no intentions, zero intentions of drinking. And they had an open bar, and them Heinekens were looking real frosty. You ever see a frosty Heineken, how beautiful it looks, and the sweat's dripping down? So I drank, and, you know, me and a girl didn't work out, and I'm driving, I'm driving home, and me and her broke up. And out of the blue, I called, called my old halfway house manager, and he told me, come to this halfway house I got a bed for you and then I went through then I went through this journey and uh I've been sober ever since by the grace of God and you know it's been it's been it's been a rough 13 years I mean because people think the longer you're sober for me you hit walls in sobriety you know you have peaks and valleys and every time I hit a wall like me I'm a type of person I redo the 12 steps every year, like every year I'm going to a different sponsor or I'm getting someone else to take me through the work again 
just to get a differ different experience, a different, you know, because my first spiritual experience isn't going to take me through 13 years. You have to keep, you know what I mean? You got to keep reworking the steps and, you know, you have to go through these spiritual disciplines, you know, like I look at my life today and it's like, I help people. I've worked in rehabs. I've worked in detoxes. I'm out of that field now because it kind of consumed a lot of me, but I'm a miracle and, and I have a purpose in life today. And my purpose is to try to help as many people as I can and not just sponsoring people and taking them through the work, but just being a service at my job being a service with my neighbors, being I'm married. I met a girl in recovery. I've been married, you know, six years. She's got she's got about the same clean time as me. So, you know, my life's pretty pretty awesome today. Am I jumping too far ahead? No, you're good. Good. Okay. Cool. You got any other questions? No. Again, towards the end here, I really appreciate you doing the podcast today. Um, you got you got quite the story <laughs> yeah yeah I, I went from literally I was the dude I was homeless I couldn't ever I couldn't pull off the apartment you know I wasn't that dude like if rent was due and if I'm at the bar having a couple drinks I'm not thinking about the rent you know I, I was the type of dude that would have a couple drinks and I would tell my friends, listen, I'll be back in an hour, hour and a half. My friends would be at the same bar and I would like, be like, yo, okay. I got, you know, I got like a half ounce of blow. Like let's, let's party for like five days, you know? And I look at my life today and it's like, I owe it all to God, you know, like people, like everyone says this misleading thing. They always say, when you speak, at a meeting, don't mention God or don't mention the steps. And you know what? That is the biggest crock of crap I've ever heard in my life. Because I needed to go to a meeting where someone would speak about God and someone would speak about the steps. Because I really don't care about your war stories and I don't care how you drank and I don't care how you drugged, but I do care how you recover. I do care to how you turned your life around. How are you able to live life regardless if you lose a loved one or cause we get sober shit still happens. Life's life still shows up in, in 13 years of sobriety. I lost jobs. I've made multiple, multiple, multiple mistakes but I never picked up over any of the mistakes that I made you know I'd lose a job okay I'd call my sponsor I did this they let me go okay next and he would give me a perspective like okay it's a job nothing is permanent in life you know the breath that I'm taking now in 30 or 50 or 60 years I'm not going to be taking that breath so I have to look at life every day like I have another chance. Every day I wake up, I'm very into the prayer and meditation. I think out of all the things in my recovery, I think meditation has brought me to a place that I'm 
it's like, it's wonderful. Like when I sit there and meditate and like when I do the steps, when I like, uh, like I do a 10 step, I do 11 step and a, you know, nightly review. I do a nightly review. I got all the questions. Have I been dishonest? Have I been resentful? What could I have done better today? And I think about my day every morning. I'll I'll sit in meditation for 10, 15 minutes and just contemplate, not plan my day. Because a lot of people think it's planning your day. I'm going to plan my day. Okay, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do that. No, I'm going to say, how do I want to show up for life today? You know, I want to be patient today or I'll set goals each day. I want to be patient. I'm a waiter. I work at IHOP. I want to be nice to my customers. I never ask for like material gain. God, take me today. Show me how you want me to be today. You know, and all that stuff has helped. You know, like living in, living in 10 and 11 10, 11, and 12, and being able to help alcoholics. I've spoke on Zoom, India, Ireland, Africa. Like, in my area where I'm living now, it's mainly discussion meetings. And you know what? For someone, I'm no better than anyone, and I'm not saying that. But to just sit in a discussion meeting it just doesn't really do much for me. I like going to like big book studies and going to solution-based meetings where, you know, people are just there to get better, you know, to work the steps and, and to get better. I guess some people could just sit in, sit in meetings and be okay. But if I'm sitting in meetings and not doing step work or not helping people, or sharing a real solution. I've been to meetings where I like speak, you know, for an hour and I'll speak about God and people just look at me like, like I got three heads or like mention something in a big book. And they look at me like, what's this dude doing? Like, I'm glad when I first got sober, I went to these solution-based meetings where People were talking about the book. People were talking about, it's a textbook. Like Alcoholics Anonymous, just like NA has a basic text. AA has a basic text where yeah. the steps aren't just on a wall to be on a wall. The steps come from the big book. And the big book gives you instructions on how to go through each step. You know, and it explains in Bill's story, there is a solution about all the steps. And, like, I had to read them first 43 pages to really know what was wrong with me. You know, the really, like, I read Bill's story, and I'm like, holy mackerel. Like, that was wrong with me the whole time. Like, this was because I drank like Bill. I acted like Bill, no matter how much money I made or what kind of job I had or what kind of girlfriend I had, none of them external things would keep me sober. You know what I mean? Is I could have a great job. Okay, I'm going to blow that job because I can't stop drinking. Or I'm going to have a beautiful girl, which I had beautiful girls. I'm going to blow this relationship because I can't stop drinking. I can promise you, I can swear to you on a stack of Bibles, 
I'm not going to do this again. And I had no power of choice or control. So it's not if I'm going to drink again, it's when. <clears throat> and I can easily stop for three weeks, a month. You know, I'll be able to stop. But I can never stay stopped. You know, that's what makes me alcoholic. I can never stay stopped. You know? Yeah. So what kind of things are you doing nowadays to keep yourself sober? Go going to a lot of Zoom meetings. I, I try to make three in-person meetings a week. I do a big book study. My sponsor's in Doylestown. So I'll go to Saturday night. He has a one-hour speaker meeting, which is really good. You know, I just try to stay connected. And I just go to meetings that move my soul like that. That helped me, that I'm able to help people also, you know? Because yeah. there's a lot of middle of the road AA, and I'm not bashing it because it works for a lot of people. They could just go to their meetings and be okay. But for me, I need more. With almost 13 years of sobriety, I need a little more, you know? And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I know how I feel when I go to certain meetings. And I know how I feel when I go to meetings that are actually, I'm learning. I'm hearing people sharing the same experience, how they went through the book and how these steps have changed their life. You know, for me, it's not about just not drinking. You know, that's the, that's the little crumb on a plate. It's living life. It's dealing, living these steps and, you know, in all my affairs, like just being connected and living, living spiritually. That is the main thing because drink for me, not drinking is not enough. It's not enough. I got to behave correctly. I have to have a good attitude. I can't let people get under my skin. Like if you're driving on a road and someone cuts you off. 13 years ago, I'm chasing that person down and I want to fight. Today, I pause. When I'm resentful, agitated, doubtful, I pause. And I ask God, God, okay, I feel a little, eh, help me. And then I pray and I get out of it, you know? So I'm not a holy roller, but I'm. if I would have known what I know today, I would have done this so long ago. I just wouldn't have went to meetings. No one told me to get a sponsor. No one told me to go through the book. No one told me that there's a solution to my problems. I just thought going to AA, make my 90 and 90, and fellowship is going to keep me sober, but it never did. You know, it never did. I had to do, I had to do more, you know? Had for the working. I had to, and I still have to, and I continue to still have to. I just got done with a big book study with some lady from Donna. We started out with 40 people. We ended the big book study with four, because no one wants to, everyone think like, people bail out on step four and step nine. Now, when you do a four step and you do your, you know, harms, your fears, 
your resentment, your sex inventory, that's all. It's about not being a victim anymore. It's about looking at your side of the street, what you did to other people, how I affected everyone that ever loved me, you know, because I hurt everyone that ever loved me from my grandparents to to my mom, to my mom, <clears throat> to my girlfriends, to my friends. I crapped on everyone that ever loved me. And I blamed you, 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 you for my problems. The fourth step is just like, here's the mirror, dude. It's not them. It's you. It's you. So go look at your part in all this and clean it up, you know, with the ninth step. You know, the ninth step for me was powerful because I forgave the guy that molested me. I forgave him. Resentment's gone. My father, I forgave him. Resentment's gone. You know, there's sick people in the world. The guy that the guy that hurt me as a kid was sick. I prayed for him. My dad, he was sick. I prayed for him. He passed. You know, I wish we had a different relationship. Even my mom, she wasn't alcoholic or addict, but she was sick. She had mental problems. I forgave everyone. And I, I looked at my life that my whole life, I was just selfish and self-centered. And everything had to be my way. And now today... It's not about me. It's about me being selfless and me trying to help as many people like me coming on here. If one or two people hear it and enjoy it or whatever, or get something from it, that's what it's about. It ain't about me. It's like I'm doing service. This is my way of doing service, you know? And to me, that's important. That's like really important, but I'm a different person today. Thank God, you know? I'm able to have a bank account. I'm able to have a car. I'm able to have a nice apartment. I'm able to love my wife. Like we just celebrated six years of marriage. Like if you would have told me this stuff 13 years ago, I'd have been like, listen, you're crazy. I'm never going to be married. I'm never going to have my own a 760 credit score. It ain't me. I'm not that dude. But in actuality, I am that dude. You know what I mean? Like, life is my oyster. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. Like, I'm, and being free is the best feeling in the world. I'm free. I'm, there's no resentment. I might not like everyone in the world, but I do love everyone. And it's pretty remarkable being sober, being able to carry a message, a real message of, recovery you know i wish more people would get that pain that i felt because that pain brought me a solution that pain wanted me to have a passion towards aa and a passion towards being sober that is a beautiful thing because it forced me to do the work because i didn't want to feel like that piece of crap no more I wanted to feel okay and be free and be happy, happy, joyous, and free. You know, and all I had to be is honest, willing, you know, honest, honesty and willingness is cake, you know? Yeah, I'm glad that you found your way. A lot of us, unfortunately, don't, you know, a lot of us don't make it out alive. 
And that's the sad part. Yep. I've worked in treatment centers, and you know what? I lost a lot of people that I really loved that I like would talk to in the middle of the night, you know, and I would tell them all the same. I'm like, it's not going to get better. It's never going to get better out there. It's only going to get worse. And the way people are dying from this fentanyl stuff, if that was, if that was happening in my day, like the way it is now, I wouldn't be on this podcast. There's no way there's, I would have never survived it. There's no, if ands and buts about that. So I guess I stepped out, but I stepped out for a purpose, you know? Yeah. All right, my friend. I think it was a good place to wrap it up. Did you have anything else that you want to throw in? No, I just want want to thank you, Jim. And it's been an honor and I hope I did okay. You did great, my friend. It was a great interview. You gave us a lot of information. I think we got to know you pretty well. Awesome. All right, so do me a favor and sit tight. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw on her, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on all uh, social media, such as Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Discord. You can also check out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find plenty of free resources and literature. So I hope you enjoyed today. That's all we have. And until next time.